and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. Welcome, everybody. My name is Dave Summers. I'm executive director of the Omaha Bar Association, and uh, I'm very excited to be here tonight at Safari Cigar and Spirits. Uh, thank you for hosting. Really do appreciate it. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we're trying to take a, a, a chapter out of yesteryear and uh, go back to a time in Omaha that uh, only some remember and, um, and that has been written about in this book, Cigar and Cigars and Wires. Uh, John Vlecka wrote this book and Jack Atkins here helped um, in the writing of this book and in the history of this book. Um, I, I did not understand our sordid past until reading this book, and uh, I decided we should have it here, smoke a cigar, have, have a drink, and hear um, from Jack, who is the son of somebody who was in the beverage industry <laughs> back then. Um, Jack also, uh, he spent a year at Creighton Law School. And so he uh, did not complete his, his uh, law training. He instead went over to MBA program at Creighton. Uh, but he, he does have that history of, of being over at Creighton Law School. And I think he's going to talk a little bit about that too. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Jack Atkins. And he's going to give some stories. Thank you. All right. All right. One year in law school, and the only thing that really taught me is I was never intimidated by attorneys the rest of my life. <laughs> I could stand stand up and talk to all of the jurors, so to speak. Uh, and how I, the straw broke the camel's back was we were freshmen and we were arguing case, case, just arguing cases. And I'm arguing with this guy in, in, in law school, and I said, I can't take it any longer. I said, would you excuse me? I have to go to the restroom. So I go into the restroom not knowing that he is following me in there, and I'm standing at a urinal, and he's standing right next to me arguing the case. And I says, that's it. I'm out of here. <laughs> so I transferred over to graduate school and got my MBA. <clears throat> Well, we're here to talk about the first half of this book is all about prohibition and bootlegging. Would you believe this law was in effect for 13 years, 10 months, 18 days, 7 hours, and 27 minutes? That's how long that uh, uh, prohibition was in this country. Now, when prohibition ended, it ended when Roosevelt signed uh, three, I call it the 3.2 beer law in 1933, but prohibition really didn't end in Nebraska until 1935 because part of the ending uh, was uh, the rules and regulations had to be set up by various states. And as you know, there's a few states that still stay dry for many years thereafter. <clears throat> Nebraska ended in 35. The first Liquor Control Commission was established in 35. And all of the rules and regulations that I've been told were set to stop my dad from doing all his extracurricular activity. Now, how uh, 
dad got involved in bootlegging because all, all of his parents, his grandparents and great-grandparents were all Union Pacific Railroad people. But he and Ernie Jackson started, right after high school, started a fruit stand over in Council Bluffs on Broadway. This picture here, it's on the screen in the back, uh, with Ernie Jackson and dad, they were partners and they sold watermelons and cantaloupes. Well, a guy by the name of Clarence Hanfell came over and said, hey boys, you can make more money selling illegal booze underneath your melons. And uh, rather than, uh, in addition, so my dad went for the program, Ernie Jackson says, I want no part of it. So Ernie splits from the fruit stand and goes to South Omaha and becomes the South Omaha Fruit Market which now is Greenberg Fruit today, and uh, stayed in Venice 40, 50 years in South Omaha. Dad went to work for Clarence Hanfeld, and the company was called United Beverage. And it was housed out of the McCord Grading Building at 12th and Leavenworth Street, east side of the building. McCord Grading was a wholesale grocery. Any event, they got all of their illegal booze 99% of it came from Chicago, Al Capone, Frank Nitty. However, Dad never met Al Capone because Capone went to the penitentiary in 1931 for income tax evasion, prosecuted by one of the attorneys out of O'Neill, Nebraska, who took a train into Chicago every week and commuted back and forth between O'Neill, finally put Capone away in 31. Now, my dad, all his business was with Frank Nitty, who whose nickname was called the Enforcer. So dad did all of the business with Frank Nitty, all the way up until when Frank Nitty committed suicide in 1943. Uh, Capone's beer was called uh, Canadian Ace Needlewild Beer and one other brand and the beer went skunky. Dad couldn't sell it. It came in Omaha on, on in white bottles on slow freight trains, the beer went skunky. As you know, during the 1930s, the banks were broke, and the only ones having had the money was the syndicate in Chicago. Dad takes the train into Chicago and borrows on his signature $32,000. And, and he was 28 years old. He says, Hey, punk kid, what are you going to do with the money? And he said, uh, I can't sell your beer. He told the truth. He said, I told the truth. They could have shot me on the spot. He said, uh, I can't sell your beer. It's no good. I have a chance to take on another franchise. Well, that other franchise was Bill Hams, Hamsbury, St. Paul, Minnesota. He was one of the first to come out with a brown bottle to shield the sun rays from the beer. Dad knew that was the secret to success. So Nitty says, all right, punk kid, we're going to give you the money. And, of course, they charge him interest. Dad takes the 32, goes to St. Paul, takes on the Ham's Beer franchise, and sells more beer in Omaha than the three local breweries, Storrs, Falls, Staff, and Mets, all the way up until World War II. Uh, <clears throat> out, uh, out of, uh, and he still kept the name United Beverage. Uh, his partner, Clarence Hanfeld, Caught a couple of 12-gauge shotgun blasts to the face. 
at 4416 Hickory Street, two blocks west of today's Vets Hospital. There's the uh, uh, B News slain, ambush and slain. Uh, this murder was kept from me all my life. When my dad died in 1973 of natural causes, his partner, Mro Fimple, called me into his office and he says, sit down in that chair. I'm going to tell you some things about your dad that you do not know. Two and a half hours later, uh, the first, he started off by saying, once upon a time, there was a murder of your dad's business partner. Your dad took over ownership of the company five days after the funeral, and he made a huge success of it. But he, he says, I'm not necessarily saying your dad had anything to do with the murder, but, and quote, unquote. Well, in any event, uh, that murder is still unsolved today, but I know who pulled the trigger. Uh, my dad was interrogated at the office down on the 12th and Leavenworth, and the three things that came out in the research of our book was, number one, dad and Clarence were in a little argument about $1,165 being short in the cash box. My dad wanted to know where the heck the money was. Number two, there was a discussion that night about bypassing Chicago and flying the booze in from the North Dakota-Canada border into Lincoln, Nebraska, and then trucking it into Omaha, because Lincoln had a better air service than Omaha at that time. So, uh, and the third thing, which we found out, research in the book, was that uh, Frank Nitty was in town the week before, and Clarence was back $4,500 in merchandise already shipped. So, uh, that's the third and main clue. And then <clears throat> while we're working on the book, I called my sister up in Milwaukee and I said, Patty, did you, did you ever hear about this murder day? Oh yeah, I know who did it. I said, what, you know who did it? I didn't even know about it growing up. How'd you find out? Well, our mother was uh, doing our, my hair. I was 11 or 12 years old and she just blurted out who did it and how it was done. So I learned that from my sister. Basically, the contract came out of Chicago, hired a guy out of St. Paul, Minnesota, which was a den of criminals. St. Paul protected them. And for $1,000 plus expenses, a guy came down here, and I think his name was uh, Frank Devine, and uh, staked a house out and hid behind the bushes, the rose bushes in the front, and shot him about 3.30 in the morning. And the body laid there on a, on a concrete until seven, when well, his wife or living girlfriend or whatever you call it back in those days was down at the Cosmos Club at 13th and Howard, carousing until about five o'clock in the morning with other men. So she came home and drove right into the garage, and there was a tunnel from the garage into the house. So she just came into the house through the tunnel, did not even see the body laying on the, on the pavement. Then about seven o'clock in the morning, the neighbors were banging on her bedroom window, and hey, Clarence is laying out there on the sidewalk. So that's, so the guy had had three, four hours of leeway to get away. So he was, he got the archbishop's uh, comp uh, dispensation to be buried at Holy Sepulchre Cemetery on 48th and Leavenworth Street. Dad was one of the pallbearers along with Tony Odo and others in the characters in the book. 
And uh, that's how Dad got into the business. Uh, now, some of these pictures behind here will be flashing from time to time. I'm going to sit down so I can show you the pictures. All right, that book there is probably your best book on prohibition. Uh, there is Tom Dennison. He ran Omaha from 1910 forward. There's the fruit stand I was telling you about where today's Playland Park used to be. That is the Dodd Street Hotel where uh, a cigar store was with gambling and, and the ladies of the evening upstairs. There's the Castle Hotel where when Frank Nitty come back a year later and won his money, uh, Dad was ready for him with a money bill around and he paid him off in uh, on the second floor of the Castle Hotel. That's why I had that in there. There's the funeral. funeral. My dad is second on the left. There's the wives. The real wife was in Kansas City running a restaurant. And then the live-in girlfriend and her niece were uh, living at 4416 Hickory. Now, one of the objects of the book that Blicka wanted to prove is the connection of Omaha with Chicago and with the syndicate. And this picture here is a picture of my dad having cocktails and dinner with Louis Greenberg at the Real Cabana in Chicago. And Greenberg was the business manager and he is the guy that invested all of the illegal booze money into legitimate businesses. I met him when I graduated eighth grade in 1952 in his office at the 19th floor of the Seneca Hotel. He ran the syndicate <clears throat> after Nitty committed suicide in 1943 after being indicted for uh, extortion of the movie studio, Daryl Zanuck and uh, Louis B. Mayer and all of those guys. Well, he got indicted and he didn't want to serve time, so he had a few drinks and walked along the uh, Illinois Central Railroad tracks and with a gun and, and he fired the first shot and he missed. So the engineers on the train thought they were shooting at him and they drove off the cars and they were running like heck and then finally the second shot did the trick and that's that was the end of uh, Frank Nitty, and then Louis Greenberg took over. Uh, there's a picture of she called herself the queen of the bootleggers. That was Louisa Vinciquera, and uh, she's quite a history in Omaha too. She lived down in Little Italy, had a few shots uh, traded with her her husband and or boyfriends. And let's see. Now there's Louis Greenberg. Dad, that's the that's the powerful guy. There's a, Dad sponsored a lot of uh, Father Flanagan. That was Abbott and Costello. He brought in to raise money for Boys Town. I I've got to <clears throat> divert a little bit on a story because a lot of attorneys are judges her in the audience back in 1922. There was a, a government informant and the two Salerno brothers. 
Tony and, and Jack, and uh, they picked up this government informant and uh, was trying to see if he really was an informant. And he ended up, they were going to take him down to the river east of Little Italy and uh, shoot him. However, they didn't frisk him, and the, and the government informant had a gun in his holster and shot one of the Salerno brothers dead. Well, this is the, the funny part about it. This little story is in the front of the book. And the question that we have, that we have still are unanswered, is that the, from the legal standpoint, that a prosecution was in federal court. And the prosecutor was the Douglas County Attorney's Office. And you know who defended the guy? The defense was the United States attorney. Now that's an awful unusual legal thing. I was hoping somebody maybe in this room could tell us a little later on how that <clears throat> came to be or how, how the the mixture came. That, that shit sounds like it was orchestrated for a particular outcome. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I, I can see the Douglas County attorney being a prosecutor because he still do that now. A lot of people don't realize it, but that happens now. But how the U.S. attorney ends up defending it, <laughs> I don't know. Let me, let me do some research on that and get back to you. All right. Well, that's, that, that's where I've been up to this point. <clears throat> now, uh, some, some of these uh, <clears throat> downtown locations where the distilleries are still are still up and running in the buildings at 9th and, and uh, Dodd Street. That's where Creighton has their get-togethers before basketball game. That was a uh, feral syrup building, and that was a distillery back in the 1930s. The other two distilleries downtown were on Howard Street. One was, I believe, 10th or 11th, and the other one <coughs> was on 13th. Those buildings are still there. Uh, for location. All right, this picture here, all right, this picture here is Jackie Gaughan's first place of business as baseball headquarters, and uh, that's where Jackie Gaughan got his start uh, before he went to Vegas. And there were several occasions when there were bombs planted in the front of that building, blowing out lots of windows. Now, my, my dad's attorney, like Blecka says, was never arrested. He was interrogated, but never arrested through all of, of, of his bootlegging activities. And his attorney, who came down here to Creighton University Law School from Wisconsin on a football scholarship, a guy by the name of Bernie Boyle, that was dad's attorney. And Bernie and his family... And my parents got to be very, very close. I remember when I was little, he lived right off of 67th and Elmwood Park Road. And every Sunday, we would drive out and sit in Bernie's living room and have three and four hour conversations. I didn't appreciate what the subject was, but he was, he was very close. And also, 
you know, back in those days, attorneys could be a dangerous profession. Back in 1936, uh, his son, Joe Boyle, was 16 years old, and out north, he was driving, and somebody planted a nitroglycerin bomb in the car, and it was and it blew up the car. Now they weren't hurt. Bernie was there. Joe, Joe was driving, and uh, they came out all right. And and I, my dad and Bernie have a pretty good idea who it was, but I never, they never mentioned the name. So like I say, you know. I, once in a while, attorneys do get uh, to be a dangerous profession. Uh, also, uh, getting back to Tom Dennison, I've got to tell you how, <clears throat> how this syndicate worked. Tom Dennison controlled the city of Omaha. He bought the police, he bought the judges, he bought everything. And how he financed it was he set up a North Omaha and a South Omaha liquor syndicate. The North Omaha liquor syndicate was handled by Billy Maher, and his office was on North 16th Street, probably about the 500 block. And, and then the first garage steakhouse was in at that location across from Jefferson Square. We used to call it Bums Park. But that's, that's where uh, the North Omaha Syndicate was. Leavenworth Street was the dividing line, and the South Omaha Syndicate was handled by Frank Calamia out of 2315 M Street, out of a little cigar store down there. That building's still standing. If you go there, you can still see some bullet holes on the outside of the building. Uh, and Frank was a pretty mean character. Another reason why I got involved with this book <coughs> I went to grade school with a, a guy by the name of Dick Kubik. And Dick would always tell me we were pretty good friends. And Dick says, well, my grandfather was shot. I said, well, what happened? We don't, I don't know. So in researching the book, his grandfather was George Kubik. It lived on 26th and on the... Uh, <clears throat> uh, trying to think, west, southwest corner, the... the, the the stones around the vacant lot are still there, but uh, apparently he was playing both ends against the middle. You know, Tom Tom Dennison was the main guy, and then George Kubik was an independent bootlegger, like my dad. They were independent, so they they kind of ran into uh, Dennison. Well, anyway, they Kubik got kidnapped from 26 Nick and E and taken out to about. Uh, 50th and F Street and was shot and the bullets they found a day later the, the, the shell casings were bought a week before in Chicago so that gave you a hint that the kind uh, the hitman came out of Chicago uh, George's kid Leo, he was a shady character and had a lot of uh, interest in East Omaha on Locust Street. So he, that's one of the main reasons I got interested also in 
working on the book with John. Incidentally, uh, the Douglas County Historical Society put us two guys together. I went out to do some railroad research, and <clears throat> John was just starting the book, and, and Kathy also was the person that kind of put us together because she knew my background. So that's that's how John and I got together on, on working on the book. I'm kind of like a color commentator because I, I knew all these characters. I was in every beer joint in Omaha when I was old enough to walk, especially going around on Saturday collecting <clears throat> collecting uh, for beer delivered. And I'm sure they were all unlicensed uh, retailers. You know, they were the gamblers. Now, I've, <clears throat> and they were, they, you know, they're thirsty too. So Dad's trucks delivered the beer to the all of the bookie operations and, and we would go out collecting. Now, after 1935, these bootleggers had to make a living. So now it's legal. So now a lot of them went to bookmaking. That's the second half of the book, bookmaking and gambling. And uh, a lot of stories as far as uh, gambling is concerned. Uh, there was a big, a big bunch in Little Italy. The other part of the Italians were up by Rotella's Bakery on 24th Street. And the city of Omaha was run mainly by ethnic populations. You had the Germans, you had who were into beer, you had uh, the South Omaha, uh, Polish Bohemians that worked at the packing house, and you had a certain section of Greek people in Southeast, South Omaha, and then Irish. And uh, you thought, everybody thought the Italians run Omaha, but that's not the case. It was the Irish that called the shots. Also, another thing in the book was a guy by the name of Johnny Roseblatt. I don't know if anybody heard of it. Johnny and my dad graduated Tech High together in 1925. Uh, so everybody at that time wanted my dad to become mayor of Omaha. Dad wanted nothing to do with politics. He says, there's your man, Johnny Rosenblatt. So my dad was the one that promoted Johnny Rosenblatt to politics. And he was the street commissioner and several other commissioners before they went to uh, the current form of government. And, and then Johnny was elected mayor. However, a little item in the book, uh, Johnny had an interest in... Uh, a hotel on 16th Street that had a little activity going on down there, so to speak. So that is, that was one of, one of the stories on Johnny. Uh, another picture I've got to tell you about is this picture of Dad donating money to uh, put this little black kid through one year at Boys Town. Well, the fellow standing right next to my dad is uh, uh, Harry. Uh, he was Tom Dennison's driver, and he became big. He was after Dennison left town in 1933. Then he joined the Omaha Police Force, and he was quite a local uh, heavyweight Omaha cop. Now, bear in mind, the reason why Tom Dennison did not continue on is because, you know, like today, corporations have have, have a setup where they have 
successors to take over. Well, Tom Dennison had no one. When Tom Dennison left Omaha, he had nobody to pick up the place, uh, you know, to keep things organized. So that's why it went disarray. Another big thing covered in the book is the 1931-32 liquor syndicate trial. That's right after Harry Lapidus got shot on the east side of Hanscom Park. And uh, the murder, that murder is still unsolved today, but we pretty much know who did it, but it's, you know, not for a court of law, but it's, it's pretty well documented that uh, uh, the killers came out of, were part of the North Omaha Syndicate, and uh, Billy Maher and Jimmy Marty, Jimmy Marty hid in the car when Harry Lapidus, he, he was a Jewish gentleman, and he went to the Omaha uh, Jewish Community Center at 20th and Dodd, and he uh, had a big 1929, I believe it was a Packard, and Jimmy Marty got into the back seat of the car, and then when Harry came out, he didn't check the back seat of the car, and he would drive drove home, and he was he lived south of Anson Park, and he's driving down Park Avenue, and uh, Marty pops up just about the time uh, they get to the bottom of the hill by the lagoon there. And would you believe my <clears throat> my cousin lives at the house right there, right across the street from the lagoon, and. Uh, he uh, tells him to stop. Tells Jimmy Marty tells Harry Lapidus to stop, and he opened the door, and that's when he got shot. So his body's hanging out, and Marty jumps out of the other car, and another car that was following was driven by Billy Maher's wife, and. Jimmy jumps in that car and they and they sped off and went back to North Omaha and got away. Well, anyway, a few months later, Marty got arrested, charged with murder, but and he was convicted, but he was released on on appeal, and they appealed the case and he was and the case was dismissed. And you know what the guy did the rest of his life? He was a meter reader for MUT. <laughs> so, so that gives you a little background there. Uh, when uh, I got a couple questions. Yeah, question. What's the significance of that shoe picture that you have up there? And then the second question is. You said Dennison didn't have a successor, and then he left Omaha and everything fell apart. Why did he leave Omaha? Uh, age, he was 74 years old, 73, 74, and uh, then he was killed in a car crash in, in California. Uh, about a year after he went to California, he just gave up. In other words, it was after the liquor syndicate trial. Bear in mind, there was initially 99 people indicted, 59 were uh, actually went to trial and not one conviction. Now the, the judge was uh, the judge was uh, Judge Woodruff. Now Judge Woodruff became 
My dad's across the street neighbor in Ralston, Nebraska, from his cabin. And and I remember uh, taking lots of meals over to Judd Woodruff. There's quite a story on, on, on Judd Woodruff. Uh, and I used to take a meal to him and his wife uh, from the cabin. Dad built that cabin to entertain all of the bartenders and their families and children on Easter egg rolls. So when uh, uh, the working stiff would get off work and say, give me a cold one, the bartender was trained to grab a hams rather than a stores and because he got a brand new $5 silk tie. That, that you can't do that anymore, but that's uh, that's what Dad's trick was. And then the cabin was outside of the city of Omaha, even though it was in Douglas County, and entertained all of the judges and the politicians to make sure everything went right in Omaha. And God says that Dad was never arrested. Well, now you can see why. That was <clears throat> originally sat on the old 18th hole of the Lakewood Golf Course. And there was a little trellis from the 18th hole into uh, the cabin. So the golfers would hit their second shots up onto the green and not, not even go get their ball. They would go through the trellis and they knew they had free beer coming, so. One thing, Jack, to your question, Tom Dennison was indicted. So along with the former chief detectives, head of the moral squad, and a number of other people, and that indictment, even though it didn't lead to any conviction, pretty much they kind of broke the Denison machine, and as Jack said, he was getting up in the age, so he traveled out and, and uh, then moved to California. Billy Nesselhaus, who is his number one man, just didn't really want to didn't really want to take it on. So, so what's your theory as to why so many people were indicted and nobody got convicted? Well, you know, I mean, number one, it started out with ninety nine, which you know that's going to be a hard, you know, from a prosecutor's standpoint, hard to imagine. They brought it down to fifty nine. You know, if you read the indictment, which we have, there's a lot of overt acts that just were just people beaten and beaten. And, and I mean, there were allegations that there was that the jury had been a couple of the Denison men had reached a couple of people in the jury. One of the interesting things, again, from a legal standpoint, and I don't know why Judge Woodruff required this, but there was what they called the more or less the operational enforcement group, and then there was more or less the uh, politically political corruption and he requires the prosecutor to convict at least one from each group before anybody could be convicted and I never did understand that because the indictment was simply a conspiracy to violate the National Prohibition Act there was no charges of bribery involved in the indictment none of that so I guess you know uh, it, you know things were done a lot differently back then but I always kind of questioned why Judge Woodruff would require that element when, you know, the simple conspiracy to violate the National Prohibition Act. But again, there was questions about uh, whether or not a couple of jurors had been reached. Uh, but again, it's hard, to, it's hard to say. What about the shoe? Oh, okay, the shoe, that, that, was, that picture was taken that they had, they cut, off, they cut off cow's feet and they put cow's feet on the bottom of shoes and that picture was taken right down here at 120th, more or less, Maple Street, where there was a big barn down there, and that was a major distillery for Omaha. And when the federal 
prohibition people would come out to, to check on the spill, they wouldn't see any human footprints. All they saw was cow footprints. And all, all, all of the story employees had to wear cow shoes on the bottom, so all, they found, all the federal officials found was cow, cow feet. Well, that, that was right down here at 120th and Mason. No animals were harmed in the Another story years later, you know, after Metz beer came back and Metz beer was was pretty strong in the Omaha area for about 10, 12 years. Then they went downhill. And uh, my, my, my dad had, still had some money and he, he absolutely loaned uh, Metz beer the money to keep going, the brewery. All right. The brewery finally goes under. It's still down there on 4th and uh, Woolworth Street. The building is still there. Because, uh, so Dan, for all the money they invested in the Mets Brewery, would you believe this is the Mets stock? This is absolutely the end of the Mets Brewery Company is the stock certificates here. Well, anyway, there's an attorney. It was, it was that movie star, uh, Gloria... Uh, Gloria Swanson's brother, Dick Swanson, attorney, I believe he was in the Service Life building, got a hold of the rest of the Mets Brewery stock and reissued the stock certificates to Continental Western Corporation. And he took my dad's money, didn't tell him about it, and bought a bunch of ground out west because he had inside information that the interstate was coming through there years ahead and that property happened to be Sap Brothers today. So all of that money, Mets Brewery money that my dad invested went and bought Sap Brothers ground and then when, when Continental Western finally went belly up, Sap Brothers, they were, they had the bank in Ashland, Nebraska and they're the ones that come up and bid now you can see uh, what the uh, story behind Sap Brothers today. Another story I got to tell you about Louis Greenberg when, when, when I was uh, went to see Louis Greenberg at his office, dad was asked by Louis Paperni at, uh, he owned a beer joint in Benson on Maple Street and Paperni wanted to uh, go into the supermarket business but the banks turned him down so he called my dad up and said, would you introduce me, take me into Chicago in 1952. I'd like to borrow some money from the syndicate to uh, go into the supermarket business. If those meetings last two days. I was I sat in on those meetings and uh, Louis Greenberg agreed to loan Louis Paperni the money to uh, put up the supermarket in Benson. And But there was one stipulation that he could, for the first two years, he could only sell the Chicago Syndicate's beer, which was Canadian Ace. So that's all he could sell was Canadian Ace for two years. That was part of the loan agreement. Uh, this Greenberg was so powerful. That's how I, how I saw my first big league baseball game. The guy would sit in his office 
And he said, boys, what do you want to do tonight? And I said, well, I'd like to see a big league baseball game. He said, well, the White Sox and Cubs are playing a benefit game. He picks the phone up and says, I want three tickets uh, to, to the game tonight. What? All sold out? I don't give a damn. I want them on my desk in 30 minutes. Bang, in comes the tickets 30 minutes later. Same thing was true the following day. Louis Paperni won. He was a heavyweight championship wrestling fan. So it, right on the pitcher's mound at Wrigley Field, we saw Luthez and Pat O'Connor wrestle for the heavyweight championship, and we had ringside seats. So that's how powerful this guy was. Three years later, my aunt sends me a front page of the Chicago Tribune. He was assassinated walking out of a restaurant near Comiskey Park. So then after that, the Chicago syndicate kind of, uh, kind of faded out to some degree. One other story I got to uh, tell you, the top picture here is Mayor Fioro LaGuardia. This was at the 1937 or 38 World Series at uh, the New York Giants uh, stands. And that was compliments of Meyer Lansky. Now, Dad got to know Meyer Lansky real well because Meyer Lansky started the dog track. The fad back in the 30s was dog tracks. And he started the big dog track, Casa Bluff, where Playland Park came later. And uh, my dad furnished him all of the liquor and the beer for his customers. So Dad and Meyer Lansky, who ran the New York syndicate, became very close friends. And one thing I remember was in 1947, Bugsy Siegel was just uh, <clears throat> shot at his girlfriend's home, Virginia Hill, in Los Angeles, California. And Bugsy had sole control of a gambling license and ownership of the Flamingo Hotel. Meyer Lansky calls dad up, we, my mother and myself, drive out, take five days to drive out to Las Vegas to sit in on two days of meetings, and Dad was offered the Flamingo Hotel and gambling license because he had a clean record, but uh, my mother, being a good Catholic Polish lady, didn't want to leave her church, so that cleared the deal. I wouldn't be here tonight. I'd probably be out running a casino. That's a true story. So, those are some of the family stories I could... Uh, kind of relate to. There, one of the one of the barrack uh, duplexes on St. Mary's Avenue, a guy was remodeling, this couple today was remodeling a building and they tear down a wall and they find uh, all of the gambling proceeds. There's the box and the ledger sheets in the box. So this is kind of an interesting thing. This came from Barrick and uh, Zygmunt's booking operation. There's the actual documents and that Tony Odo and my dad were partners uh, for Paps Blue Ribbon in Southwest Iowa and I remember many times I would go over on Sundays and we'd sit in Tony Odo's uh, living room over there off 53rd and Wandle Street and there was lots of cash trading hands I, I, I do remember that uh, also I got to remind you that you know, uh, Iowa was still dry. You had to buy your liquor from state-owned liquor stores all the way up until 1969. So the only thing, 
bootlegging continued in Iowa all the way up until Dad got out of the business. So uh, Dad's operation would sell liquor to <clears throat> after-hour spots, uh, private bottle clubs, because they they we Dad could sell it cheaper than than buying it from the state of Iowa. So that that's enough that bootlegging really continued on in Iowa up until when Dad sold the business in 1948, and he went into the nightclub business, and that's where I worked from fourth grade through high school at the old Omaha Birchwood Club, so all these characters that dodged the bullets came out, and I waited at tables on them, I bartended, I did everything, so I just happened to hear all these stories, like with the Joe DeGelios and... and uh, I, I, boy, he was he was quite a dresser. I mean, the guy was just not perfect dress. Yeah, that, and that's where I met all these guys, and I just heard these stories over and over again. I, I tell you, after stores sold out to a group in uh, in uh, Storm Lake, Iowa, then that group sold out to Greenbelt up in Minnesota. And this is what really did the stores bury, and not too many people know this but they wanted more head on the beer. So they put in cobalt. That's part of the atomic bomb. In, uh, and, and they put cobalt in, and, and tons of people died. This has been very covered up. And that's what put stores out of business, because of the cobalt. My cousin, who was a doctor, was the one that discovered that. Uh, uh, Jim Connors, the heart doctor, and he told me all about it. He had to testify in trial that that cobalt killed so many people and just put the actual brand out of business. I've got to tell you another thing about Frank Cowell. Frank Cowell was, was a very successful gulager. He was the founder of uh, Johnny's Cafe, and his beer was extra good. Well, I... I, I warned that the beer, the formula for that beer was another brewery in Omaha called Jetters Beer, Jetters Brewery at 30th and Y Street. And I really think Frank Cowell's formula was Jetters Beer. Now, Jetter played it honest. When the prohibition shut them down, they did not want anything to do it. However, Frank Cowell ended up with the formula for Jetters Beer, and that's why his beer was in top demand. And I think that's where it came from, from the Jetters formula. That one I don't know about. They, they were close. I, I, Frank and all I know is when uh, Tom Cowan and I were born on the same day, I heard from my mother that Frank Cowan and my dad went on a three-day South Omaha drunk, and my mother wasn't too happy. <laughs>